Welcome to Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything in KOPN.
KOPN 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. More than radio, it's community radio, KOPN, Columbia, Owensville, Tibet, New Bloomfield, High Point, Boonesboro, Bonnets Mill, Hatton, and areas all around Mid-Missouri. This is Mike Hagan. I'm your host of Radio Orbit every Saturday night, Sunday morning, 2 a.m. to 5 a.m., Got three hours to spend with you tonight, and uh, we'll get right into it. But first, uh, I want to say a quick happy birthday to my friend Doug. Doug out there uh, doing up a party today, this afternoon. In fact, there are probably some of the folks out there in Radioland who may have may have been out there as well. Might even still be going on uh, Solstice. Great Columbia rock and roll band playing there this evening. And uh, had a great time there earlier, so happy birthday to Doug, 30 years old. And uh, happy birthday to the crew over there partying with him and uh, welcoming his uh, his 30th year. And I uh, hope you guys are chilling out. hope Solstice had a nice set there and you guys enjoyed the music a lot. All right, Mike Hagan, Radio Orbit for Sunday, August 22nd, 2004. I'm with you every Sunday here, and we talk about the strange and unexplained and mysterious and all of the different phenomenon that uh, that we that we uh, experience in our lives and on our planet here. And uh, we like to talk about all those crazy things. So that's what we do here on Orbit uh, tonight. I had uh, planned to have Kent Stedman on the air with me. Kent is a uh, researcher, primarily a solar researcher, but uh, dabbles in lots of other interesting things on the web. Uh, his uh, URL, his website address is www.cyberspaceorbit.com. And uh, Kent had uh, a personal issue come up, a family issue, and had to leave town. He's in uh, Seattle, but uh, had to go to Utah for the weekend. So anyway, we're going to have Kent next weekend. And uh, tonight we're going to kind of throw it together as we go here. I got sort of a, oh, I don't know. I got sort of a surprise. I think for the second hour, if I can, uh, if I can find what I'm looking for. But we'll, um, we'll, we'll kind of do radio on the fly tonight and just sort of see what happens. Uh, as always, first thing we do, we'll do a little space weather update here in a few minutes. We'll find out what's happening on the sun. We'll find out what's happening in our local neighborhood in space and uh, talk about anything interesting that may have recently happened or might be coming up soon. And i got a few stories that I want to talk about after that. We'll mix in some good music, as we always do. Uh, and I think uh, for the second hour, 
like I said, we were going to have Kent on the air, but I think I'm going to play a classic uh, interview, or at least part of it, uh, between Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyers. Uh, Bill Moyers interviewing Joseph Campbell, well, about 16 years ago now, I guess it was. I think the interview were actually the interviews were actually done in 1987 or 1988. Uh, don't quote me on that. I think uh, I think Joe died in, in 88 actually, and. Uh, Bill Moyers uh, spoke with him pretty uh, uh, shortly before he actually did die, and it was a great series of interviews that they did out at George Lucas's ranch, and um, out in California, and a great, really inspirational uh, bunch of words that went on for hours and hours. Um, but we'll listen to uh, one hour of that tonight. During the second hour, that's going to start in about 45 minutes or so, something like that. Like I said, before that, we'll do space weather update coming up in a few minutes. We will uh, talk about some interesting discoveries, an amazing discovery in uh, Peru of uh, an ancient city that was discovered recently, um, another incredibly ancient city that was unearthed in the Sahara Desert, a uh, story about that. So we'll talk about all that stuff in just a few minutes, and uh, we're going to set the mood here with a little... New music from the Tragically Hip. Great new CD just came out by the Hip, and uh, it is called In Between Evolution, and that uh, it's a pretty, uh, pretty reasonable title for the CD for the situation that we're in here on planet Earth right now. But we're bucking hard, and we're going to blow through this uh, uh, this uh, this little period of a dark age that we seem to be going through right now. So anyway, new Tragically Hip from in between evolution this is called you're everywhere and this is for my sweetheart ashley out there
Tragically Hip on KOPN. That was new stuff from their CD, In Between Evolution, that was called You're Everywhere. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. It's about 2.17 in the a.m. in Columbia, Missouri, broadcasting from 915 East Broadway, right downtown in the heart of Columbia. And I always enjoy coming down here on Saturday nights and driving in around uh, 1 o'clock or so, and I always get to check out what's going on downtown, and uh, it's always interesting. So anyway, tonight no different than that. So... Okay, let's get right to it here. We're going to do a little space weather update and talk about what's happening in the space around our little planet here. We always do this uh, right at the beginning of the show here on Orbit. Um, We talk about the sun. We talk about near-Earth asteroids, potentially hazardous asteroids. We talk about any particular astronomical configurations that might be cool to check out uh, or that might be uh, interesting to go take a look at. But uh, anyway, uh, this week... Well, as you know, we've been watching the sun pretty closely. Uh, we tend to do that on this program. I watch weekly to see what the sun is up to, and I, I mention every week, and i like everyone to remember what a significant force the sun is in all of our lives and in the lives of every creature that lives on this planet and in this solar system. Without the sun, we are all history. We are all nothing. And uh, so let's... Uh, uh, be thankful that the sun shows up every morning and that the uh, light from the sun lights up our world and warms our planet and gives us all the things that we need in order to survive. So so the sun, obviously, a very big factor in everything that happens here on planet Earth. We've been watching a, uh, a group of sunspots for well over two months now, and um, that is uh, sunspot area 649, and it's just now... Um, just now passing off, uh, uh, sliding off the disc and over on the east on the east limb again. Actually, I take that back uh, on the on the western limb of the of the disc of the sun. When you look at these things, um, well, you know we have the capability to look basically in real time at the sun through the SOHO and LASCO satellites, and um, the the way that the instruments are set up is uh, the image that we see on the computer is actually sort of a mirror image and so if things appear on the left hand side of the sun which we would uh, assume to be the western region of the sun that's actually the eastern region of the sun and we're just sort of ser- uh, we're just sort of seeing it backwards because of uh, what the um, what the optics of the equipment do uh, the equipment being the satellites that are that, that are watching the sun. So anyway, when I when I when I mention the eastern and western limb, uh, if you happen to go to those websites and you see that it looks like it's on the other side of the sun, well, uh, just remember that um, you're looking at things in reverse there. So anyway, Area 649 is a a really active and large sunspot group that uh, we've been watching for a couple of months. It's, it's rotated around the entire disk, around the backside, and then come back around a number of times now. This is pretty, um, uh, it's, uh, pretty unusual. Typical sunspots don't last more than a few weeks. Uh, they, they, uh, most of the time we only see them one time, and by the time the uh, surface of the sun rolls around uh, or rotates so we can see it the next time, which usually takes about 26 to 28 days, um, usually those 
those groups are gone. Now, uh, 649 has been different. It's been... Uh, it's been showing up every time uh, uh, we expect it to roll around. It's it's still there. So 649, uh, even though it rotated off the disc uh, yesterday and today, it uh, there's a very good chance that it will be rolling back around in about 27 days. Now 649, as it was cruising around, uh, uh, launched another X-class flare this week, and I cannot overestimate how uh, uh, unbelievable this is. The the Activity on the sun is absolutely out of sync with what the what the mainstream mainstream scientific community is telling us. We are supposed to be in the middle of a solar mi- uh, solar minimum, and we have had incredible activity for the last four years, and it's increasing. The last year has just been incredible. So, anyway, another giant flare off on. Uh, uh, on the uh, on the eastern or on the western limb, as uh, sunspots uh, region 649 was was rotating around. Now this was not a geo-effective flare. Uh, it did not have Earth in its sights, so to speak. Even though there was a coronal mass ejection that was associated with that big flare, um, it was not Earth. Uh, Earth-centered, which basically means that uh, it's not going to have too much of a significant on the Earth. Uh, there may be some minor uh, minor effects that we see in the aurora and things like that, but nothing really significant. In fact, we probably won't see a lot of aurora from that either. So anyway, 649 is still something to keep our eyes on. Um, we talked last week about sunspot region 661 that we wanted to keep our eye on that, and also 656, which had let go a bunch of M-class flares a week, a uh, week and a half ago. But those those two areas did not uh, turn out to develop into anything really significant. So 649 is still sort of the big uh, the big guy rolling around the sun, and the one that we seem to be keeping our eyes on for the last. A couple of months now, and uh, a really interesting occurrence and strange. And so we'll keep watching the sun. And I got to tell you, it 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 uh, it seems to it seems to me that the sun reflects uh, the activity that happens here on the Earth in a certain way too. Just like uh, the sort of as above, so below sort of idea, uh, the, the the macrocosm being mirrored in the microcosm and vice versa and as things get sort of wacky and crazy down here on planet earth i think that there's a corresponding sort of wackiness that's going on on the sun and i don't know if one drives another or if they're interrelated in any particular way but it does seem to be that uh, like like that certainly for the last four years the uh increased activity on the sun has certainly sort of paralleled the increased activity down here on planet earth and uh, certainly interesting situations both both uh, above and below. So we'll continue to watch the sun. Let's see, what else is going on in the sky? Uh, we know we had the Perseids last week. Hopefully pe- uh, some people had an opportunity to see some of the meteors, uh, uh, the meteor showers last week. That uh, was really strong around the 11th and the 12th, but actually went on through the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th. Uh, you get a few, uh, a few rocks not quite as frequently if you're staring at the sky as you would have seen on the 11th or the 12th, but you still get to see a pretty good bunch of uh, fireworks up there in the sky. So uh, we'll keep you informed as to the next scheduled meteor showers. Those are always pretty fun to watch and astounding, actually, if you spend a little bit of time in the in the darkness in your backyard, just stare up at the sky and relax for a few minutes. You'll see some really incredible things. 
uh, near-Earth asteroids. Near-Earth asteroids, NEAs, or potentially hazardous asteroids, PHAs. These are, these are space rocks that are larger than 100 meters in diameter and that come close to Earth. Uh, we call them Earth crossers. They, at some point in their orbit and at some point over time, they cross the orbit of the Earth. And those are asteroids that are potentially hazardous to Earth because uh, if the timing is right, we could experience a collision between those two bodies and uh, uh, if we have an impact with a big stone on the planet there are significant ramifications for the planet when that happens uh, we don't have anything uh, coming too close in the next couple of weeks of course I've been talking for the last month about Tutatis Tutatis is going to roll around on September 29th or thereabouts we don't know exactly when because I've told you before that the orbit of Tutatis is a little bit unpredictable uh, but we'll be watching that as we get closer to the date that's just now about uh, five or six weeks ago or uh, five five or six weeks away when Tutatis will be doing its uh, flyby uh, so that's coming up in uh, about six weeks and that should be interesting we'll see if that has any effect on the moon or if there's uh, or how close it actually gets to planet earth there uh, are of course, the doomsayers that say it's going to hit the planet, and there are the typical uh, statements coming from the NASA people and stuff that say it's no problem, and it probably is no problem, but you just never know, and uh, there's not a whole lot we can do about it, even if it is. So chill out and listen to some music and enjoy your life and do your best to learn and... Uh, and be cool with other people. So hang in there. This is Mike. I'll be back in about uh, a few minutes here to talk a little bit more about some stories and some other things that are happening around the world. And in the meantime, this is Love Spreads from Stone Roses. <laughs>
my sister. Hagen, your host. It's about 2.35 in the morning, coming to you live every Sunday from 2 a.m. to 5. Okay, we were talking about the sun and space and all that sort of stuff uh, before the break there, and we're going to talk about some other interesting stories here. Um, I want to talk about some future guests, though, first. <coughs> As I told you, uh, my good friend Kent Stedman was going to be with us this week, but he'll be with us next week instead, and always interesting to have Kent on the uh, on the air for those who have heard him before after that uh, the following week let's see that that's uh, the following week will be September 4th and 5th and I'm actually going to be out of town have somebody sitting in to do the show for me I'll probably just pay, play a taped show of one of the programs that we've aired in the last uh, four or five weeks here but then coming back on the 11th and 12th I have a really great program scheduled I'll be uh, airing a 
a taped interview with a gentleman whose name is G. Edward Griffin. Um, well, Ed Griffin and I have become friends, and uh, he is uh, a researcher and a writer. He's written a number of books on uh, some wide-ranging topics, but his primary expertise is on the Federal Reserve and the real nature of that institution. If you don't know a lot about the Federal Reserve, uh, it might be an interesting program for you to listen to on September 11th and 12th. The Federal Reserve is a very important institution in our country. Uh, however, there are a lot of things about it that a lot of people don't know. And Ed Griffin is going to be on the air, and we'll be talking about some of those things. Um, it is also the anniversary of the Trade Center attacks of September 11th in 2001, and we will also be talking about 9-11 and what really went down that day and how the events of that day translated into the war in Afghanistan and other policy decisions that have been made in the U.S. government since. So Ed Griffin has a really unique perspective on that. He's an intelligent, intelligent man who's been studying this stuff for many, many years. And I think if you listen to the program, uh, you'll, uh, you may not agree, but you certainly will have a few things to think about after you hear Ed Griffin talk. So that's coming on September 11th and 12th in a couple of weeks, and I really look forward to it. Uh, it's going to be sort of a... Uh, anniversary special and the show will be dedicated to the family members and the people who lost their lives uh, on that day and the period that followed it so anyway that's coming up on September 11th uh, also uh, Dr. Colin Ross I've mentioned him in the past Colin Ross is an expert on mind control and uh, a doctor of psychiatry, head of the Ross Institute of Psychiatric Medicine, and um, the author of the book Bluebird, a book about Manchurian candidates and the real-life research that was done in this country and others, and perhaps ongoing research, uh, if you had to guess. Um, but uh, regardless, uh, past research that has been documented on mind control and the creation of multiple personality disorders, uh, the intentional creation of multiple personalities, so-called alters, and the creation of uh, sleepers, basically zombies that will do your will. So The Manchurian Candidate, which is a movie that was remade recently, didn't get a whole lot of press because it touched on a couple of pretty, uh, pretty sensitive nerves, I think. But the original movie was released in the early 1950s, either uh, during or shortly after the Korean War. And the movie was based in fact, at least the conceptual idea that this was possible, uh, is actually true and has been now documented and been tr uh, proven to be true. And in fact, the United States government and governments around the world uh, were uh, experimenting with techniques in mind control as early as the 1940s. Um, and uh, we're going to talk a lot about that with Colin Ross when he's on the program in a few weeks. Uh, again, that will be a taped interview, um, and I'll air it on the show in a couple of weeks, so it'll probably be actually toward the end of September when we do that. Lucy Pringle. 
Lucy Pringle is an English woman, a lovely English woman, who is also a private pilot and also an aerial photographer. And for many years, Lucy has been flying over the countryside of England and has been photographing amazing imagery that is shows up in the crops and has been doing so now for over 20 years. Uh, Lucy is a researcher of crop circles and crop formations. And uh, she has been studying this phenomenon for many, many years. And it should be a really interesting program when we talk to Lucy. Lucy's going to be on the program in September as well. And that will be actually a live show because doing the show with Lucy's cool because even though it's 3 o'clock in the morning when I get her on the telephone here, it's actually 9 o'clock Sunday morning in London, uh, even though she's in, uh, I think she's in Cornwall actually. But anyway, Lucy uh, can get up, have a nice little breakfast, and then talk to all of us on Radio Orbit. So that's coming up, Okay. Uh, let's see. Tonight, uh, my guest was Kent Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com. Had to cancel, and we'll talk to him next week. But at 3 o'clock in about 20 minutes here, I'm going to put on a wonderful uh, archived interview between Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell. And if you don't know who Joseph Campbell is, uh, just hang in there. It's well worth the listen, and uh, I'm going to play that thing straight through. It's about an hour long, and then I'll come back at 4 o'clock, and uh, I'll open the phone lines and let you guys give me a call. And if you want to discuss what Mr. Campbell was talking about, we can do that. Um, otherwise, I'll just uh, play some music and talk a little bit more myself. Uh, with regard to information, my email address is orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio at AOL.com. If you have questions about anything that I bring up during the program, if you are interested in a website that has information for anything that I talk about during the program, for example, I talk about these solar satellites. Well, if you want to look at it yourself, Send me, an e- uh, send me an email at orbitradio at AOL.com, and I'll let you, uh, let you in on the secret. And I'll give you the links uh, for these live satellite feeds where you can watch um, what's happening in the sky and in space around our planet or anything else. So uh, send me an email, orbitradio at AOL.com, if you have any questions or any comments or anything like that. I'd love to hear from you guys. Also, uh, I'm real close to having the website up and running. The address of... The new website will be www.radioorbit.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. That's only one O in the middle. Radioorbit.com or radioorbit.net. Very shortly, within a week, probably two weeks maximum, I will have, uh, have the website up and all of the programs... Uh, that I do are recorded, and I will put those up on the web and archive them there. So anybody who doesn't have the capacity or the late-night staying ability to listen to my entire program until 5 in the morning, you can listen to those things streaming, archived on the web, and you can listen to them anywhere in the world and any time you like. So that's coming real soon, www.radioorbit.com, with just one O in the middle. And uh, 
the phone number here at the studio for later. Just to write this down, put it on your chalkboard. Always have it available. You never know when you know. You never know when you might need to call K O P N. Uh, the phone number here in the studio is eight seven four five six seven six. And the phone number, if you want to get on the air later, Doug, is 443-8255. Okay? All right. You are listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. I'll be back with you uh, in a minute. We're going to play something here off the soundtrack from the movie The Crow. This is Stone Temple Pilots with Big Empty.
Big Empty, Stone Temple Pilots on Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan coming to you live, 2.45 or thereabouts. Okay, great story um, in uh, Reuters a little bit earlier this week on the 17th. I like to talk about the past a lot here and uh, how little we know about the real, true history of this planet. And here's an interesting story, actually a couple of them with regard to that. Lima, Peru, this is a story from Reuters. An ancient walled city complex inhabited some 1,300 years ago by a culture later conquered by the Incas has been discovered deep in Peru's Amazon jungle, explorers said on Tuesday. U.S. and Peruvian explorers uncovered the city, which may have been home to up to 10,000 people. Notice throughout this article they'll use words like may or could have or possibly. Those words really mean they don't know. Okay? Anyway, which may have been home to up to 10,000 people after a month trekking in Peru's northern rainforest and following up on years of investigation about a possible lost metropolis in the region. The stone city made up of five citadels at 9,186 feet above sea level, stretches over 39 square miles and contains walls covered in carvings and figure paintings. Uh, The leader, Sean Savoy, told Reuters, it is a tremendous city. It contains areas with stone etchings and 10 meter, that's 35 feet high, 33 feet, I guess, actually, 33 foot high walls, said Savoy, who had to hack through trees and thick foliage to finally reach the site on August 15th. Uh, according to early Spanish accounts, uh, Spanish conquistadors who arrived in Peru in the early 1500s um, thought that there was a culture there that was called the Chacapoyas, uh, Chacapoyas culture, and there's been speculation that they uh, uh, they were actually a very fair-skinned tribe, and they were known because they were so tall, they were very big people, which sort of goes against the uh, sort of common stereotypical. South American uh, or Latin American. We don't tend to think that these are people of very large stature, but uh, apparently the Chacapoyas, because of some of the burial coffins that have been uncovered and some of the tombs that have been uncovered and the the uh, bones and the skeletons found within, it seems that this is a very uh, large group of people. So, anyway, uh, bottom line, really interesting discovery there in Peru and uh, who knows how long it's really been there who knows how many more of these incredible cities are buried in the forests in the rainforest in South America and also in Africa and also in Asia and these things occur all over the planet we find uh, stories all the time about another lost civilization and the more you study these things the more you realize that they were, in some cases, highly, highly advanced, uh, technologically advanced. Now, technologically uh, does not have to, have to mean the same type of technology that we're familiar with. We happen to have a technology in our day and age which is based on the combustion of fossil fuels primarily and the creation of electricity through well, through many different means, but uh, uh, we have a, uh, a technology that is primarily dependent upon electricity and dependent upon 
fuel, which is uh, created through the fossil remains of dead animals and plants. That's the current technology in a nutshell, what we do here, as sophisticated as you think it is. We basically burn dead animals and plants, and we use the energy in that to do all the other things that we do. Well, there were cultures and civilizations uh, eons ago that also did incredibly amazing things, and by some accounts, and in some people's opinion, mine uh, being one of those, uh, they did things that were actually quite a bit more astounding than anything that we've ever even come close to doing in our day and age. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for the ancestors, my ancestors and your ancestors, around the world, regardless of, uh, of ethnic background or country of descent or cultural uh, designation. I have a tremendous amount of respect for all of our ancestors and what they were capable of in the past. Many things that we still have yet to even uncover and have yet to even understand. The mysteries of humankind, the past on this planet, uh, we could talk for many, many days about it. And that's why, uh, that's why I do this program, because there are so many mysteries and so many things that we don't know and uh, those are the things that I like to talk about here in this program and this city that was found in the jungles in Peru is no different uh, just an amazing discovery and, and when you actually see the carvings and the level of craftsmanship and the way that these temples and pyramids and buildings are built if you could see it it, it blows the mind you have incredibly complex architecture that's built in an area that is incredibly remote and difficult to access and the quarries where the stones were dug up are many 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 miles away sometimes with water in between anyway there's all kinds of big questions about how they did these things and and they also um if you see the way the stones are put together, the stonework is ridiculous. Uh, it, it has laser-like precision. Seams in between gigantic stones that weigh many tons where you can't even slide a credit card between them. The fit is so perfect. And the, the masonry that these people were capable of is uh, absolutely astounding. And uh, there were also incredible artists and artisans and musicians and sportsmen. Um, and they enjoyed their life thoroughly. Uh, so, anyway, um, that uh, is a story that came out on August 17th in Peru. Now, here's another one, which came from Al Jazeera. And uh, this talks about... Actually, this is from the Daily Star, but I think it was an Al Jazeera story. But anyway, the remains of a prehistoric town dating back 15,000 years has been discovered in western Sahara. Now, this is in the desert, okay? It's been covered by sand for millennia. And uh, this 15,000-year-old town has been uncovered here in the desert. Um, the Moroccan state media said on Thursday that a team of scientists uh, just stumbled across this place. They uh, weren't even looking for it. And of course, historically, many, many of our significant scientific 
discoveries, medical discoveries and technological discoveries, um, they, they happen by accident. And uh, they tend to show up in the strangest places. And archaeology is no different. Some of the most astounding and some of the most uh, uh, historically relevant archaeological discoveries have been made by accident. This one here, no different. Um, anyway, they stumbled across this place, uh, and they believe it is uh, a historical town that's mentioned in mythology that's called Argilas, or Argias, and um, it is uh, deep in the, in the country of Morocco. But anyway, uh, the remains of a place of worship, uh, houses, in other words, residences of people, and a necropolis as well as, as uh, columns, rock engravings, uh, animals carved on the wall and paintings. Uh, these were all found here. It was a really significant find. Um, the isolated area is known to be rich in prehistoric rock engravings. This is what the story, I'm actually reading from the story here. But experts said the discovery could be significant if proven that the ruins were of Berber origin, as this civilization is believed to date back only some 9,000 years. In other words, the Berber civilization was only supposed to date back about 9,000 years, and this one uh, here is about 15,000 years old. So that would predate... Uh, what the original estimates were of the Berber civilization by about 6,000 years. So, again, um, they really don't know. A lot of speculation. And speculation is rampant these days in science, and it gets passed off often as fact. And I like to point those things out sometime. I appreciate all the work that the, uh, that the scientists in all these different fields do, and I appreciate that, uh, that they're working to explain it. But I also, um, I also like it when they admit that they really don't know the truth and that they are speculating and hypothesizing and theorizing and uh, just trying to get more pieces of the puzzle because uh, the mysteries that were so fortunate to be able to study and that give us a sense of wonder um, they are not so easily explained and those are just a couple of stories to to point that out it's Mike Hagan you're listening to Radio Orbit it's about 2.58 we'll do a little top of the hour station ID here and play a uh, promotion for an event that's coming up in a couple of weeks here that I want to uh, that I want to help uh, help the station promote but anyway top of the hour we'll play another song or two and uh, then we'll listen to some Joseph Campbell so stick with me I appreciate y'all listening it's 3 o'clock in the morning on Sunday the 22nd of August you're listening to Radio Orbit and uh, what is this this is Kay's Choice. Enjoy it. Be back in a few minutes. Well, actually, that uh, that CD didn't didn't do so well. So let me back up here and I'll see if I can find something that I can play uh, as we go to the break here. What do I want to hear? Actually, this one here kind of fits in with the BCR promotion that we're going to do. So let's actually put on that BCR promotion and then we'll be back with Dire Straits. AOPN and Mojo's present BCR, the Afro-Nuclear Wavability Funk Swing Reggae Terska Band at Mojo's on Friday, August 27th. Doors open at 8 p.m. BCR will set the cosmic dance in motion. More information is available at kopn.org or mojoscolumbia.com. Mm-hmm. 
That's VCR Live at Mojo's Friday, August 27th. Doors open at 8 p.m. VCR. VCR.
Straits Industrial Disease. That's from Love Over Gold. Great CD that they released many years ago. Love Over Gold. An interesting concept, huh? Love Over Gold. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And uh, I got a special treat for you here. Even though my, my pal Ken Stedman couldn't be with me today. I'm going to play a part of a great old interview, about 15 or 16 years old, Bill Moyers, who's a great interviewer and a cool old Texan, uh, interviewing Joseph Campbell, one of my heroes, one of, uh, one of the people who really taught me a lot of things um, as I uh, got older and started to figure out what I thought about life and the world and all the things that we experience here. Anyway, Joseph Campbell, a big factor in shaping my sort of worldview, and he did the same for many, many people. And over the months here, as I probably try to sneak in a little bit more Joseph Campbell every time uh, when I get a chance like this. So without further ado, this is Joseph Campbell, the first hour of a series of interviews that he did with Bill Moyers back in 1987 or so, um, not long before his death. So enjoy this. I'll be back to you guys in about half an hour and uh, for a short break, and then we'll finish this uh, interview, the second half of the hour. even to risk the adventure alone for the heroes of all time have gone before us the labyrinth is thoroughly known we have only to follow the thread of the hero path and where we had thought to find an abomination we shall find a god and where we had thought to slay another we shall slay ourselves. Where we had thought to travel outward, we shall come to the center of our own existence. And where we had thought to be alone, we shall be with all the world. 
Joseph Campbell and the Power of Myth with Bill Moyers, The Hero's Adventure. Joseph Campbell believed that everything begins with a story. So we begin this series with Joseph Campbell with one of his favorites. He was in Japan for a conference on religion, and he overheard another American delegate, a social philosopher from New York, say to a Shinto priest, We've been now to a good many ceremonies and have seen quite a few of your shrines, but I don't get your ideology. I don't get your theology. The Japanese paused as though in deep thought, and then slowly shook his head. I think we don't have ideology, he said. We don't have theology. We dance. Campbell could have said it of his own life. When he died in 1987 at the age of 83, he was considered one of the world's foremost authorities on mythology, the stories and legends told by human beings through the ages to explain the universe and their place in it. The 20 books he wrote or edited have influenced artists and performers as well as scholars and students. When he died, he was working on a monumental historical atlas of world mythology, his effort to bring under one roof the spiritual and intellectual wisdom of a lifetime. Some of his books are classics. The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which established his fame 40 years ago, and his four-volume study of mythology, The Masks of God. Joseph Campbell was one of the most spiritual men I ever met, but he didn't have an ideology or a theology. Mythology was to him the song of the universe, music so deeply embedded in our collective unconscious that we dance to it even when we can't name the tune. Over the last two summers of his life, we taped these conversations in California at Skywalker Ranch, the home of his friend George Lucas, whose movie trilogy Star Wars had been influenced by Campbell's work. We talked about the message and meaning of myth, about the first storytellers, about love and marriage, gods and goddesses, religion, ritual, art, and psychology. But we always came around to his favorite subject, the hero with a thousand faces. Why the hero with a thousand faces? Well, because there is a certain typical hero sequence of actions um, which can be detected in stories from all over the world and from many, many periods of history. And uh, I think it's uh, essentially, you might say, the one deed done by many, many different people. Why are there so many stories of the hero or of heroes in mythology? Well, because that's what's worth writing about. I mean, even in, in uh, popular novel writing, you see, these, the main character is a hero or a heroine. That is to say, someone who has found or achieved or done something beyond the normal range of uh, achievement and experience. A hero properly is someone who has given his life to something bigger than himself or other than himself. 
So in all of these cultures, whatever the costume the hero might be wearing, what is the deed? Well, there are two types of deed. One is the physical deed, the hero who has performed a, a war act or a physical act of heroism, saving a life. That's a hero act. Uh, giving himself, sacrificing himself uh, to another. And the other kind is the, uh, the spiritual hero who has uh, learned or found a, uh, a mode of um, experiencing the, uh, the supernormal range of human uh, spiritual life and then come back and communicated it. It's a cycle. It's a going and a return that the hero cycle represents. But then this can be seen also in the simple initiation ritual where a child has to give up his childhood and become an adult, has to die, you might say, to his infantile personality and psyche and come back as a self-responsible adult. It's a fundamental experience that everyone has to undergo. We're in our childhood for at least 14 years, and then to get out of that posture of dependency, psychological dependency, into one of psychological self-responsibility requires a death and resurrection. And that is the basic motif of the hero journey, leaving one condition finding the source of life to bring you forth in a uh, richer or more mature or other condition. So that if we happen not to be heroes in the grand sense of redeeming society, we have to take that journey ourselves spiritually, psychologically, inside us. That's right. And uh, Otto Rank, in his wonderful, very short book uh, called The Myth of the Birth of the Hero, he says that everyone is uh, a hero in his birth. He has undergone a tremendous transformation from a little, uh, you might say, water creature living in a realm of the amniotic fluid and so forth, and then coming out, becoming an air-breathing mammal that ultimately will be self-standing and so forth. This enormous transformation, and it is a heroic act, and it's a heroic act on the mother's part to bring it about. That's the primary hero. Hero form, you might say. Still a journey to be taken after that. There's a big one to be taken. And that journey is not consciously undertaken. Uh, do heroes go out on their own initiative? Oh, well, they're both kinds. A very common one that appears in Celtic myths of someone who has followed the lure of a deer or animal that uh, he has been following and then carries him into a range of forest and landscape that he's never been in before. And then the, the animal will undergo a transformation, become the queen of the fairy hills or something like that. That is one of not knowing what you're doing. You suddenly find yourself in full career of an adventure. 
There's another one where one sets out responsibly and uh, intentionally to perform the deed. For instance, when Ulysses' son, Telemachus, was called by Athene, go find your father. That father quest is a major hero uh, adventure for young people. That is uh, the adventure of finding what your career is, what your nature is, what your source is. Um, he undertakes that intentionally. Then there's one into which you are thrown and pitched, for instance, being drafted into the army. You didn't intend it, they are in. You're in another transformation. You've undergone a death and resurrection. You put on a uniform. You're another creature. So does the heroism have a moral objective? The moral objective is that of saving a people or saving a person or saving an idea. He is sacrificing himself for something. That's the morality of it. Now you, from another position, might say that something was something that should not have been realized, you know. That's judgment from another side. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't destroy the heroism of what was done. Absolutely not. Well, that's a different uh, angle on heroes than I got when I was reading as a, as a young boy. The story of Prometheus going after the fire and bringing it back and benefiting humanity and suffering yeah. for it. I mean, Prometheus brings fire to mankind and consequently civilization. That's, by the way, a, a universal theme. What is the hero? The the fire fire theft theme with a usually with a relay race after it. Often it's a blue jay or a woodpecker or something like this that uh, steals the fire and then passes it on to something else and something else, one animal after another. And they're burned by the fires as they're carrying it on. And that accounts for the different colorings of animals and so forth. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, a worldwide myth, the fire theft. Do these stories of the hero... Uh, vary from culture to culture? Well, it's the degree of the illumination that uh, or action that makes him different. There is a typical early culture hero who goes around slaying monsters. Now that is uh, in the period of history when man is shaping his world out of a wild, savage, unshaped world. Well, it has another shape, but it's not the shape for man. He goes around killing monsters. So the hero evolves over time, like most other concepts and ideas. And well, he, he evolves as the culture evolves. Yeah. <clears throat> now, uh, Moses is a, is a hero figure. In his uh, ascent of the mountain, his meeting with Yahweh on the summit of the mountain and coming back with the rules for the formation of a whole new society. That's the hero act. Departure, fulfillment, return. And uh, on the way, there are adventures that uh, can be paralleled also in other traditions. Now, the Buddha figure, it's like that of Christ. Of course, 500 years earlier, you could match those two traditions right down the line, even to the characters of their apostles or their monks. 
Christ. Uh, now, there's a, a perfectly good hero deed formula represented there. And he undergoes three temptations. The economic temptation where the devil says, you look hungry, young man, change the stones to bread. Jesus said, man lives not by bread alone, but every word from the mouth of God. Next, we have the political temptation. He's taken to the top of a mountain and shown the nations of the world and says, you can come into control of all these if you'll bow to me. And then, now you're so spiritual, let's go up to the top of Herod's temple and see you cast yourself down and God will bear you up and you won't even bruise your heel. So he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Uh, those are the three temptations of, of Christ uh, in the desert. The Buddha also goes into the forest, has conferences with the leading gurus of the day, and goes past them, comes to the bow tree, the tree of illumination, undergoes three temptations. They're not the same temptations, but they are three temptations. And one is that of lust, another is that of fear, and another is that of social duty, doing what you're told. And then both of these men come back and they choose disciples who help them establish a new way of consciousness in terms of what they have discovered there. These are the same hero deeds. These are the spiritual hero deeds. Moses, the Buddha, Christ, Muhammad. Muhammad literally, and we know this about him, he was a camel caravan master, but he would leave his uh, home and go out into a little mountain cave that he found and meditate and meditate and meditate and meditate. And one day a voice says, write, and we have the Koran, you know. It's an old story. Sometimes it seems to me that, that we ought to feel pity for the hero instead of admiration. Uh, so many of them have sacrificed their own needs. They all have. And very often what they, what they accomplish is shattered by the inability of the followers to see. Yeah. You come out of the forest with gold and it turns to ashes. That's another motif that occurs. In this culture of easy religion, cheaply achieved, it seems to me we've forgotten that all three of the great religions teach that the trials of the hero journey are a significant part of it, that there's no reward without renunciation and without a price. The Koran speaks, do you think that you shall enter the garden of bliss without such trials as come to those who passed before you? Well, if you realize what the real problem is, and that is of losing uh, primary think primarily thinking about yourself and your own self-protection losing yourself giving yourself to another that's that's what a trial in itself is it not mm -hmm. there's a big transformation of consciousness that's concerned and what all the myths have to deal with is transformation of consciousness that uh, you're thinking in this way and you have now to think in that way. 
Well, how is the consciousness transformed? By the trials. The test that the hero undergoes. Or certain illuminating revelations. Trials and revelations are what it's all about. Well, who in society today is making any heroic myth at all for us? Do movies do this? Do movies create heroic myths? I don't myths? know. Uh, now, my experience of movies, I mean, the significant experience I had of movies was when I was a boy, and they were all really movies. They weren't talkies. They were black and white movies. And uh, I had a, a hero figure who uh, meant something to me, and he served as a kind of model for myself in my, uh, in my physical character, and that was Douglas Fairbanks. I wanted to be a synthesis of Douglas Fairbanks and Leonardo da Vinci. That was my idea. But those were models, were roles that came to me. Does a movie like Star Wars fill some of that need for the spiritual adventure for the hero? Oh, it's perfect. It does the, the cycle perfectly. It's not simple morality play. It has to do with the powers of life and their inflection through the action of man. One of the wonderful things, I think, about uh, this uh, adventure into space is that the narrator, the uh, artist, the one thinking up the story, is in a field that is not covered by our own knowledges, you know? There was much of the adventure in the old stories is where they go into regions that no one's been in before. Well, we've now conquered the planet, so there are no empty spaces for the imagination to go forth and fight its own uh, war, you know, with uh, powers. And uh, that was the first thing I, I felt there. There's a, a whole new realm for the imagination to open out and live its forms. Do you, when you look at something like Star Wars, recognize some of the themes of the hero throughout mythology? Well, I think that George uh, Lucas was using standard mythological figures. The old man as the advisor, well, specifically, what he made me think of is the uh, Japanese swordmaster. Remember, a Jedi can feel the Force flowing through him. I've known some of those people, and um, this man has a bit their, their character. Well, there's something mythological, too, isn't there, in the sense that the hero is helped by this stranger who shows up and gives him some instrument, a sword or a sheaf of yeah, light. Yeah, but he light. gives him not only a, a physical instrument, but a psychological commitment and a psychological center. This time, let go your conscious self and act on instinct. Well, he had him exercising with that strange weapon and then pulled the mask over. That's real Japanese stuff. When I took our two sons to see it, they did the same thing the audience did at that moment when the voice of Ben Kenobi says to Luke Skywalker in the climactic moment use the force Luke let go Luke the audience 
soaked out into they did elation into a floor well, you see this thing communicates it is in a language that is talking to young people today and that's that's marvelous So the hero goes for something. He doesn't just go along for the ride. He's not a mere adventurer. Well, a serendipitous adventure can take place also. Um, you know what the word serendipity comes from? It comes from the Sanskrit, serendipa, the isle of silk, which was a form of the, formerly the name of Ceylon. And it's a story about a family that's just rambling on its way to Ceylon and all these adventures take place. Uh, so you can have the serendipitous adventure as well. Is the adventurer who takes that kind of uh, trip a hero in the yeah. mythological He is ready for it. This is a, a, a very interesting thing about these uh, mythological themes. The, <clears throat> the achievement of the hero is one that he is ready for, and it's really a manifestation of his character. And it's amusing the way in which the landscape and the conditions of the environment match the readiness of the hero. The adventure that he's ready for is the one that he gets. Look, I ain't in this for your revolution, man. I'm not in it for you, princess. I expect to be well paid. I'm the mercenary solo begins as uh, as a mercenary and ends up as a hero. He was a, a very practical guy, a, uh, a materialist in his character, at least as he thought of himself. But he was a, a compassionate human being at the same time and didn't know it. The adventure evoked a quality of his character that uh, he hadn't known he possessed. I love you. He thinks he's an egoist, he really isn't. And uh, that's a very lovable kind of human being, I think. And there are, are lots of them functioning beautifully in the world. They think they're working for themselves, very practical and all, but no, there's something else pushing them. What did you think about the scene in the bar? That's my favorite, not only in this piece, but of many, many pieces I've ever seen. <laughs> well, where you are is on the edge. You're about to embark into the outlying spaces. And uh, a real adventure. A real adventure. This is the, the jumping off place. And there is where you meet people who've been out there. And they run the machines that go out there and you haven't been there. It reminds me a little bit in um, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. The atmosphere before you start off the adventure. You're in a seaport and there's old salt seamen who've been on the sea and they, that's their world. And these are the space people also. I got a bad feeling about this. 
My favorite scene was when they were in the garbage compactor and the walls were closing in, and I thought that's like the belly of the whale that Joe. That's Campbell. what it is. Yeah, that's what they were. They're down in the belly of the whale. What's the mythological significance of the belly? It's the descent into the dark. Jonah in the whale. I mean, that's that's a standard motif of going into the whale's belly and coming out again. Why must the hero do that? The whale represents the uh, personification, you might say, of all that is in the unconscious. Psych in reading these things psychologically, water is the unconscious. The creature in the water would be the dynamism of the unconscious, which is, is dangerous and powerful and has to be uh, controlled by consciousness. The first stage in the uh, hero adventure, when he starts off on adventure, is leaving the realm of light, which he controls and knows about, and moving toward the uh, the threshold. And it's at the threshold that the monster of the abyss comes to meet him. And then there are two or three results. One, the hero is cut to pieces and descends into the abyss in fragments to be resurrected or he may kill the dragon power as Siegfried does when he kills the dragon but then he tastes the dragon blood that's say he has to assimilate that power and when Siegfried has killed the dragon and tasted the blood he hears the song of nature he has transcended his humanity you know and uh, re uh, uh, associated himself with the powers of nature which are the powers of our of our life from which our mind removes us you see this thing up here this consciousness thinks it's running the shop it's a secondary organ it's a secondary organ of a, of a total human being and it must not put itself in control it must submit and serve the humanity of the body join me and I will complete your training when it does put itself in control you get this father the man who's gone over to the intellectual side I'll never join you if you only knew the power of the dark side he isn't thinking in, or living in terms of humanity he's living in terms of a system and this is the threat to our lives we all face it we all operate in our society in relation to a system now is the system going to eat you up and relieve you of your humanity or are you going to be able to use the system to human purposes would the hero with a thousand faces help us to answer that question about how to change the system so that we are not serving it I don't think it would help you to change the system but it would help you to live in the system as a human being by doing what? Well, like Luke Skywalker, not going over, but resisting its, its uh, impersonal claims. 
But I can hear someone out there in the audience saying, well, that's all well and good for the imagination of a George Lucas or for the scholarship of a Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. but that doesn't, isn't what happens in my life. You bet it does. If the person doesn't listen to the demands of his own spiritual and, and heart life and uh, insists on a certain program, you're going to have a schizophrenic crack up. The person has put himself off-center. He has aligned himself with a programmatic life, and it's not the one the body's uh, interested in at all. And the world's full of people who have, uh, who have stopped listening to themselves. In, in my own life, I've had many opportunities to commit myself to a system and to go with it and to obey its uh, requirements. My life has been that of a maverick. Uh, I would not submit. You really believe that the creative spirit ranges on its own out there beyond the boundaries? Yeah, I do. Something of the hero in it. I don't mean to suggest that you see yourself as a hero. No, I don't, but uh, I see myself as a maverick. (laughs) (laughs) So perhaps the hero lurks in each one of us when we don't know it. Well, yes. I mean, our life evokes our character, and you find out more about yourself as you go on. And it's very nice to be able to put yourself in situations that will evoke your higher nature rather than your lower. Give me an example. I'll give you a story. I'm dealing with an an Iroquois story right now. There's a motif that comes in American Indian uh, stories very often, what I call the refusal of suitors. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. This is Mike Hagan, and we're right in the middle of an interview with Bill Moyers uh, talking to Joseph Campbell back in 1986. And... uh, the tape here should be flipping over here in a second, and um, and we'll get right back into that interview. So I'll I'll chat with you here until uh, until that thing's until that thing's switched over. The girl with her mother lived in a wigwam on the edge of the village. She was a very handsome girl, but extremely proud and uh, would not accept any of the boys. They proposed to her through the mother. And the mother was terribly annoyed with her. Well, one day, they're out collecting wood, and they have gone a long way from the village. And while they are collecting the wood, a terrific darkness comes over them. Now, this wasn't the darkness of night descending. When you have a darkness like that, there's some magician at work somewhere. So uh, the mother says, uh, well, let's uh, gather some bark and make a little wigwam, a bark wigwam for ourselves, and uh, collect wood for a fire, and we'll just spend the night here. So they do that, and the mother falls asleep. And the girl looks, and there's this magnificent guy standing there with a wampum sash, glorious, and feathers, and all this kind of black feathers. He says, I've come to marry you, and I'll await your reply. She accepts the guy, and the mother accepts the man. And he gives the mother the wampum belt to prove that uh, he's serious about all this. 
So he goes away with the girl. She has acquiesced. Mere human beings weren't good enough for her, but here's something that really... Ah, so she's in another domain. Now, the adventure is marvelous. She goes uh, with him to his village, and they enter uh, his uh, lodge. The people in there greet her, and she feels very comfortable about it and all. And then the next day, he says, I'm going off to hunt. So he leaves the lodge, and the door is closed with a flap. There's a flap. When he closes the flap, she hears a strange sound. So the, there's the whole day, and she's just in the hut. And as evening comes, she hears that strange sound again. And the door flap is flung off, and in comes this prodigious serpent with his tongue darting, and he puts his head in her lap and says, Now you must search my head for lice and things like that. And she finds all kinds of horrible things there and kills them all, and then he withdraws, and in a moment, after the gate door has been closed, it opens again, and then he comes, the same beautiful young man again, and said, uh, were you afraid of me when I came in just now? No, well, she says she wasn't all afraid. Next day, he goes off to hunt. And then she leaves the lodge to gather wood. And the first thing she sees is an enormous serpent basking on the rocks. And then another. And then another. Then she begins to feel very badly, very homesick and discouraged. Then the evening, the serpent, and then the man again. The third day, when he leaves, she decides she's going to try to get out of this place. So she goes out and she's standing in the woods thinking and a voice speaks to her and she turns and there's a little old man there and he says, darling, you are in trouble. The man that you've married is one of seven brothers. They are great magicians. And uh, like many people of this kind, their hearts are not in their bodies. There's a collection of seven hearts in a bag that is hidden under the bed of the eldest to whom you are married. You must go get that and then we'll deal with the next part of the adventure. She goes in and finds a bag of hearts and is running out and the voice calls after her, stop, stop, it's the voice of the magician. And she continues to run. He says, you may think you can get away from me, but you never can. And just at that point, she hears the voice of the old man. He says, I'll help you, dear. And he's pulling her out of the water. She didn't even know that she was in water. What does that say to you? That's to say you have moved out of the hard land, the solid earth, and are in the field of the unconscious. And she had pulled herself into the uh, transcendent realm and got caught in the negative powers of the abyss. And she's being rescued now by the upper powers. What you have done has been to elevate yourself out of the local field and put yourself in the field of higher power, higher danger. And uh, are you going to be able to handle it? 
if you are not eligible for this place into which you put yourself, it's going to be a demon marriage. It's going to be a real mess. Uh, if you are eligible, it can be a glory that will uh, give you a life that is, is yours in your own way. So these stories of mythology are simply trying to express a truth that can't be grasped any other way. It's the edge, the interface between what can be known and what is never to be discovered because it is a mystery transcendent of all human research. The source of life. What, what is it? No one knows. Why are stories important for getting at that? Well, I think it's, it's important to live life with a knowledge of its mystery and of your own mystery. And it gives life a, a new zest, a new balance, a new harmony to do this. I mean, therapy and psychological therapy, when people find out what it is that's ticking in them, they get straightened out. And uh, what is it that life is? I find thinking in mythological terms uh, has helped people invisibly. You can see it happen. Oh, what does it do? It, it uh, erases anxieties. It puts them in accord with the inevitables of their life. Uh, and, and they can see the uh, the positive values of what are the negative aspects of what is positive it's uh, it's it's whether you're going to say no to the serpent or yes to the serpent as easy as that no to the adventure yeah the adventure of being alive of living when I was growing up tales of King Arthur Tales of the medieval knights, tales of the dragon slayers were very strong in my world. Dragons represent greed, really. The European dragon guards things in his cave, and what he guards are heaps of gold and virgins. And he can't make use of either of them, but he just guards. There's no vitality of experience, either of the value of the gold or of the female whom he's guarding there. Psychologically, the dragon is one's own binding of oneself to one's ego, and you're captured in your own dragon cage. And uh, the problem of the psychiatrist is to break that dragon, open him up, so that you can have a larger field of uh, relationships. Jung had a patient come to him who felt alone and she drew a picture of herself as uh, caught in the rocks from the waist down she was bound in rocks and this was on a windy shore and the wind blowing and her hair blowing and all the gold which is the sign of the vitality of life was locked in the rocks and the next picture that he had her draw had followed something he had said to her suddenly 
uh, a lightning flash hit the rocks and the gold came pouring out and then she found reflected on rocks round about the gold and there was no more gold in the rocks it was all available on the top and in the conferences that followed those patches of gold were identified they were her friends she wasn't alone but she had locked herself in her own little room and life but she had friends do, do you see what I mean this is killing the dragon and uh, you have fears and things uh, this is the dragon that's exactly what that's all about at least the European dragon Chinese dragon is different what is it? it represents the vitality of the swamps and the dragon comes out beating his belly and saying ha 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 you know that's another kind of dragon and uh, he's the one that yields the bounty and the waters and all that kind of thing he's the great glorious thing but this is the negative one that cuts down so what you're saying is if there are not dragons out there and there may not the, be the, the real the dragon is in you and what is that real dragon? That's your ego holding you in. What's my ego? What I want, what I believe, what I can do, what I think I love, and all that. What I regard as the aim of my life and so forth. It might be too small. It might be that which pins you down. And if it's simply that of doing what the environment tells you to do, it certainly is pinning you down. And so the environment is your dragon as it reflects within yourself. How do I slay? How do you slay that dragon in me? What's the journey I have to make, you have to make, each of us has to make? You talk about something called a soul's high adventure. My general formula for my students is follow your bliss I mean find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it can my bliss be my life well, love or my it life's will be work your is life. it my work or my life well if the work that you're doing is the work that you chose to do because you are enjoying it that's it but if you think oh gee I couldn't do that you know that's your dragon that's locking you in oh no I couldn't be a writer Oh, no, I couldn't do what so-and-so is doing. Unlike the classical heroes, we're not going on our journey to save the world, but to save ourselves. And in doing that, you save the world. I mean, you do. The influence of a vital person vitalizes. There's no doubt about it. The world is a wasteland. People have the notion of saving the world by shifting it around and changing the rules and so forth and no any world is a living world if it's alive and the thing is to bring it to life and the way to bring it to life is to find in your own case where your life is and be alive yourself it seems to me that's the power of the teacher isn't it to, to bring vitality to others to make others see the vitality in them children. well it happens that's one of the delights of teaching I mean when you're not teaching in order to have an easy job but because you you really have something to teach and you love young people and you want to give what you've got 
found to them. And to see them come alive is, is the reward of teaching. Do you say I have to take that journey and go down there and slay those dragons? Do I have to go alone? If you have someone who can help you, that's fine too. But uh, ultimately, the last trick has to be done by you. In all of these journeys of mythology, there's a place everyone wishes to find. What is it? The Buddhists talk of nirvana. Jesus talks of peace. There's a place of rest and repose. Is that typical of the hero's journey? That there's a place to find? That's a place in yourself of rest. Now, this I, I know a little bit about from athletics. The athlete who is uh, in championship form has a quiet place in himself. And uh, it's out of that that his action comes. If he's all in the action field, uh, he's not performing properly. There's a center out of which you act. And Jean, my wife, a dancer, tells me that in dance, this is true, too. There's the center that has to be known and held. There, it's quite physically recognized by the person. But uh, unless this center has been found, you're torn apart. Tension comes. Now, the Buddha's word is nirvana. Nirvana is a psychological state of mind. It's not a place like heaven. It's not something that's not here. It is here in the middle of the turmoil. What's called samsara, the whirlpool of life conditions. The, that nirvana is what? It is the condition that comes when you are not compelled by desire or by fear or by social uh, commitments when you hold your center and act out of there and like all heroes the Buddha doesn't show you the truth the illumination he shows you the way to the way but it's got to be your way too I mean how should I get rid of fear uh, the Buddha can't tell me how I'm going to do it there are exercises that uh, different teachers will give you, but they may not work for you. Um, and uh, all a teacher can do is give you a clue of the direction. He's like a lighthouse that says there are rocks over here and steer clear. You talk a lot about consciousness. Yes. Most people hear that term and, like me, have only a veiled understanding of it. What is it? Jean and I are, are, are living in Hawaii, and uh, we're living right by the ocean, and we have a little lanai, a little porch, and uh, there's a coconut tree that grows up through that porch, and it goes on up. And uh, there's a, a, a kind of vine plant, a big powerful thing with leaves like this, that has grown up the coconut tree. Now that plant sends forth 
little uh, feelers to go out and, and clutch the plant. And it, it knows where the plant is and what to do and where the tree is. And it, it grows up like this and it opens a leaf and that leaf immediately turns to where the sun is. Now you can't tell me that leaf doesn't know where the sun is going to be. All of the leaves go just like that, what's called heliotropism, turning toward where the sun is. That's a form of consciousness. There is a, a plant consciousness. There is a animal consciousness. And we share all of these things. You eat certain foods and the bile knows whether there's something there for it to go to work on. I mean, this whole thing is consciousness. I begin to feel more and more that the whole world is conscious. Uh, certainly the vegetable world is conscious. And when you live in the woods, as I did as a kid, you can see all these uh, different consciousnesses relating to themselves. Now, it is a part of the sort of um, Cartesian uh, mode to think of consciousness as being something peculiar to the head, that this is the organ originating consciousness. It isn't. It's an organ that inflects consciousness to a certain direction, a certain set of purposes. But there's a whole consciousness here in the body. And... Uh, The whole living world is informed by consciousness. I have a feeling that uh, consciousness and energy are the same thing somehow. Where you really see energy, there is consciousness. Scientists are beginning to talk quite openly about the Gaia principle. Uh, you are the whole planet as an organism. Mother Earth. And you see, if you will think of ourselves as coming out of the Earth rather than has been thrown in here from somewhere else, you know. Thrown out of the earth. We are the earth. We are the consciousness of the earth. These are the eyes of the earth. And this is the voice of the earth. What else? How do we raise our consciousness? Well, that's a matter of what you are disposed to think about. And... Uh, that's what meditations are for. And all of life is a meditation. Most of it unintentional. A lot of people spend most of it in meditating on where their money's coming from and where it's going to go. But that's a level of meditation. Or if you have a family to bring up, you're, you're concerned for the family. Uh, these are all perfectly... Uh, Imp very important concerns but they have to do with, with physical conditions mostly and spiritual conditions of the children of course but how are you going to communicate spiritual consciousness to the children if you don't have it yourself so how do you get that then you think about the myths what the myths are for is to bring us into a, uh, a level of consciousness that is spiritual just for example, I walk off 52nd Street and 5th Avenue into St. Patrick's Cathedral. I've left a very busy city and uh, one of the most uh, fiercely economically inspired cities on the planet. I walk into that cathedral and everything around me speaks of spiritual mystery. The mystery of the cross, what's that all about there? 
because stained glass windows is bringing another atmosphere in. My consciousness has been brought up onto another level altogether. And I am on a different platform. And uh, then I walk out and I'm back in this one again. Now, can I hold something from that? Well, certain prayers or meditations that are associated with the whole context there. Uh, these are what are called mantras in India. Uh, little meditation themes that hold your consciousness on that level instead of letting it drop down here all the way. And then what you can finally do is to recognize that this is simply a lower level of that. The cathedral at Charlotte, you love so much, oh, well. also expresses a relationship of the human to the cosmos, doesn't it? Well, I think everyone who has spent any time at Chartres has felt something very special about this cathedral. I've been there about eight times. When I was a student in Paris, I went down there about five times and spent one whole weekend and I identified and uh, looked at every single figure in that cathedral. I was there so much that the concierge, this little old fellow who took care of the cathedral, he came to me one noontime and he said, uh, would you like to go up with me and ring the bells? I said, I sure would. So we climbed the flesh, the, the tower, up to where the great bell was, the great enormous bronze bell. And uh, there was a, a little, like a seesaw. And he stood on one end of the seesaw. And I stood on the other end of the seesaw. And there was a little bar there for us to hold on to. He gave the thing a push, and then he was on it, and I was on it. We started going up and down, and the wind blowing through our hair up there in the cathedral. And then it began underneath. Bong, you know, bong, bong. I said it was one of the most thrilling inventions of my life. And uh, when it was all over, he brought me down. He said, I want to show you where my, my room is. Well... In the cathedral, you, you have the nave, and then the transept, and then the apse. And around the apse is the choir screen. Now, the choir screen in shot is about that wide. And he took me in a little do uh, door into the middle of the choir screen, and there was his little bed and a little table with a lamp on it. And when I looked out, there was the Black Madonna, the vitrine, the, the window of the Black Madonna, and uh, that was where he lived. Now, there was a man living in a meditation, hmm? a constant meditation. I mean, that, that was a very moving, beautiful thing. Well, I've been there time and time again since. What do you find when you go there? What does it say about all that we've been discussing? Well, the first thing it, it, it says is it takes me back to a time when these principles informed the society. I mean, the, you can tell what's informing the society by the size of the, what the building is that's the tallest building in the place. 
when you approach a medieval town, the cathedral's the tallest thing in the place. When you approach a 17th century city, it's the political palace that's the tallest thing in the place. And when you approach a modern city, it's office buildings and dwellings that are the tallest things in the place. And if you go to Salt Lake City, you'll see the whole thing illustrated right in front of your face. First, the temple was built. The temple was built right in the center of the city. Yeah, I mean, this was a proper organization. That's the spiritual center from which all flows in all directions. And then the capital was built right beside the temple. And it's bigger than the temple. And now the biggest thing is the office building that takes care of the affairs of both the temple and the political building. That's the history of Western civilization. From the Gothic through the princely periods of the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries to this economic world that we're in now. In New York now, the debate is over who can build the tallest building, not to praise but to build the tallest building. Yeah, and they are magnificent. I mean, some of the things that are going up in New York now really are, and this is a kind of architectural triumph. And what it is is the statement of, of the city. Uh, we are a financial power center, and uh, look what we can do. It's a kind of uh, virtuosic, acrobatic stunt. Will new myths come from there? Well, something right. You can't predict what a myth is going to be any more than you can predict what you're going to dream tonight. Myths and dreams come from the same place. They come from uh, realizations of some kind uh, that have then to find expression in symbolic form. And uh, the myth, the only myth that's going to be worth thinking about uh, in the immediate future is one that talking about the planet, not this city, not these people, but the planet and everybody on it. That's my main thought for uh, what the future myth is going to be. And what it will have to deal with will be exactly what all myths have, deal with, have dealt with. The maturation of the individual, the gradual, uh, the pedagogical way to follow from dependency through adulthood to maturity and then to the exit and uh, how to do it and then how to relate to this society and how to relate this society to the world of nature and the cosmos that's what the myths have all talked about that's what, what this one's got to talk about but the society that it's got to talk about is the society of the planet and until that gets going you don't have anything there's that wonderful photograph you have of the earth seen from space mm. and it's very small and at the same time it's very grand you don't see any divisions there of nations or states or anything of the kind this might be the symbol really for the new mythology to come that is the country that we are going to be celebrating and those are the people that we are one with. Wow. 
Joseph Campbell, from about 17 years ago, being interviewed by Bill Moyers. That series is called The Power of Myth, and uh, there's about six hours total of those interviews between Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell, and just fascinating stuff and really worth listening to. And uh, over over time, I'll try. Uh, so you can have the benefit of, of hearing those those tapes. Anyway, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio on KOPN 89 FM, Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community radio. And this is KOPN from the heart of Missouri and Columbia. And this is Mike Hagan. We've got about 50 minutes left of Radio Orbit. And I'm going to play a little music here coming up and then chat a little bit about some of the things that Joseph Campbell was talking about in the previous uh, hour's interview. Stay tuned after my show for Carol Greenspan. She does a show called Jewish Spectrum, and it's on every Sunday at 5 o'clock, and Carol always has really interesting music. Uh, put together for her show and I uh, takes me about 25 minutes to get home so I get to listen to her show on my way home and it's always enjoyable so check Carol out at uh, 5 o'clock in the meantime this is Mike Hagan and uh, like I said Radio Orbit thanks for being with me here and uh, I'll be back to you in just a few minutes this is Dada on Radio Orbit
Data, KOPN Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagen. It's about 4.17 a.m. Sunday morning, the uh, 22nd of August. And if you've been with me tonight, thanks for hanging out. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Joseph Campbell that I played there in the middle of the show. Uh, I heard that stuff a number of years ago, and boy, I tell you, it had a profound effect on uh, on me and uh, some really, really interesting stuff there that can be applied to life from from really any particular perspective or any um, any background. And I think that's something that uh, is worth talking about a little bit. Joseph. Uh, Campbell began that interview talking about heroes and this idea of the hero in mythology. Then he went through a number of examples of heroic figures in our our own mythology. And uh, by mythology, I include all of the religions as well as the older, more standard idea of mythology, such as the Roman and the Greek myths and uh, even long before that, the Egyptian stories and the Sumerian stories and the Mesopotamian stories, and even before that, the stories that were told on the cave walls of our ancestors 40, 50, 60,000 years ago. All of this stuff originates from the same place, this place inside our, our consciousness as human beings has nothing to do with uh, with race or gender or religion or ethnic background or anything like that. These are fundamental, conceptual, archetypal ideas that are found deep within the human psyche and they are... Uh, the roots go back many, 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 many years to our ancestors long before um, time was even being recorded so the idea of a hero is that uh, you know it's these people that can go above and beyond themselves and this is the key to be able to go beyond yourself where the self is no longer the primary objective the well-being of the self it is now the well-being of something else or the promotion of an idea or the protection of another. Um, these are heroic acts. And you don't have to be Luke Skywalker or Moses or Buddha or Christ or Krishna or Muhammad to perform heroic acts. Um, and I think that's what Joseph Campbell was trying to tell us in that first, that first part of that interview. That... Uh, when you start to do these things, when you start to get beyond the self and beyond the ego of the self and um, start to consider the greater world about you and the creatures and the people and all the other things that live and exist in that world, it brings about a transformation of consciousness. And we talked a little bit about that last week when we had... John Cranshaw and Kelly Naylor here from the School of Metaphysics. But this idea of change of consciousness really changes 
the way you view the way you view the entire world, and um, it comes not for free. It comes through hard work and through effort and uh, through learning. And this is what all of the masters have told us. This is what all of our heroes have told us uh, that we have to know ourselves and come to conclusions and find answers within ourselves. And then, once we do that, if we're lucky, we're capable to escape beyond that self, beyond the ego. And then that's when you're, that's when you become capable uh, of actually manifesting these heroic type acts, because you no longer. Uh, you're no longer putting yourself first and you just don't care. You're not worried about the particular consequences of this or that because you're devoted to the idea that is beyond yourself. So, anyway, that's what mythology does. And that's what religion does. At least that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to teach us that we can go beyond ourselves, and that the heroes in our mythologies are not necessarily that different from us and that we are capable just as they were capable and that we can do the things that they were able to do and it's all a matter of um, of consciousness and perception and human potential and being able to um, slay that dragon kill that dragon within yourself and uh You'd be surprised what you're capable of doing. Uh, the, the Campbell talks about in that interview he makes a reference to Darth Vader. Actually, they use the Star Wars movie uh, or the Star Wars story as a as an analogy to the typical hero hero story. And when he talks about Darth Vader, uh, Joseph Campbell. He says that he's this man or this creature who has gone to the intellectual side. It's an interesting choice of words uh, that he used to describe that. He doesn't say the dark side. He says the intellectual side. And that is one of the things that really sparked me about Joseph Campbell. He recognizes little things like that. And if you listen to this program, uh, you may have heard me talk in the past about intellectualism and intelligence and the distinction the difference the difference between those two things intelligence and intellect are two different things and uh, um, to put it in a nutshell in intellect only asks the question can it be done is it possible can we do it? And intellect, <clears throat> intellect, intellect asks those questions without regard to consequence, without regard to uh, the greater system that the intellect is supposed to serve. The brain is a secondary organ. The, as, as Joseph Campbell says the brain likes to think that it's running the show but it is a secondary organ it, it serves a larger system 
and that is the system of the human being, your overall being. Now, the difference between intellect and intelligence is that intellect doesn't really uh, take into account the overall well-being of the system. It is purely about answering the question, can it be done? Is it possible? And intellect has done some incredible things, technological advances and, and uh, inventions and discoveries. And uh, this is intellect. Um, but intellect also develops neutron bombs and horrific devices to, um, to destroy. Because intellect has no bounds with regard to the greater system and to the system of humanity. So intelligence is the combining of this intellect from the brain, the strict intellectual can it be done, with the intelligence of the heart. And the heart can balance the system so that intellect serves the system as opposed to threaten the system. Intellect unbounded is threatening and destructive. It's also wonderful and brilliant. But the two come together, and they have to be harnessed by wisdom. And the wisdom comes from the heart. And that's what the myths are trying to tell us. That's what the myths are trying to tell us. The old myths of our religious traditions the old myths of traditional Greek mythology, the myths of our ancestors written on the walls of caves, and the myths that are born today in movies such as Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, perhaps, or these sort of uh, mythical adventure stories. But the payoff is always heroism and self-enlightenment going beyond the physical and going beyond the ego of the self for the greater good of others or, or of another idea so really cool stuff and um, uh, it really ties into uh, the research that I'm very interested in with, uh, with intelligence and this idea of uh, of combining intelligence and intellect to balance, um, to balance things out, because I, because I think that I think that's our only solution. We're we're walking on the edge of a razor blade right now. We've got technology that's completely out of control. Even though I benefit from it and I love it, I love the technology, um, and I'm an addict to it, like many people are. Um, but I also realize the dangers of the technology, and um, and I think that we're going through a a critical time in our history and our future history is uh, to a great degree to a great de degree being defined right now and the decisions that are being made right now um, are uh, are going to greatly affect our future but Joseph Campbell also talks about saving yourself and not really trying so much to save the system or to change the system but to change yourself and that all of these stories are about you and me and what we have to do to go inside ourselves and um, and, and, and die to that animal self 
and be reborn as a human being, somebody who cares about the entire system of humanity and not just uh, not just their own self and their own um, their own local surroundings. And these are what the stories are trying to say. They're trying to talk to you and me. And uh, it's something that we can all do and we can all work on in our own lives, regardless of background, regardless of anything. We're all capable of it, and it's a matter of slaying that dragon and following your bliss. Do what makes you happy, and good things will come from it. Be right back in a minute. Radio Orbit, this is Mike Hagan.
That was World Party with uh, Ship of Fools. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. It's 4.35 a.m. on Sunday morning, August 22nd. Um, I want to finish up talking about Joseph Campbell real fast. Uh, I kind of lost my train of thought there at the end of uh, the last segment. But I just want to add that when he was talking about these changes that we want to try to make in ourselves, that um, it's... That in itself is what changes the world. Don't try to change the world, in other words. Change yourself, and then the world changes. Um, I'm actually taking a look at the web right now and um, at my friend Jeff Rents' site, Rents.com, anyway, and I'm just looking at the news stories there, and, uh, you know, it's um, all this political stuff that's going on right now um, that's always going on, I guess, but... um, I'm starting to actually feel like that's sort of just a sideshow and just a diversion uh, to keep you away from doing these things that uh, the myths we're talking about. And um, by slaying that dragon in yourself and by becoming heroic in your own life and in your own world, that changes the world, not John Kerry George Bush the change has never come from above from governments or institutions Uh, the institutions and the governments and the establishment typically the ones that smother it even though they speak about it very um, well they act like they know exactly what they're doing. And uh, they actually are doing the opposite of what they say. So, in any case, they're going to do what they do. That's the nature of those institutions. And these days, I tend to just think that uh, if you do your own thing in your own community, in your own world, with your own friends and your own family, and you become a human being and recognize that consciousness is everywhere like Joseph Campbell talked about consciousness is energy wherever there is energy you find consciousness and uh, we're learning this now more and more scientifically biology and quantum physics are showing us this that this is no longer um, just a bunch of uh, dookie It's real stuff. And there's energy everywhere. Therefore, there's consciousness everywhere. It might not be the same as your consciousness, but you have to recognize it and understand that it's there and that it's real. And all of those consciousnesses, the plant consciousness and the animal consciousnesses, they are all embedded in you. That's what our history is. And uh, we, we have millions of years of that history embedded in our genetic structure and you can't get away from it you are a part of nature you are a product of nature you are not separate from nature and this is what the myths are telling us is that although we may have dominion over the natural world dominion and domination are two different things just like intelligence and intellect are two different things. 
And this is what the myths are trying to tell us. So enough about mythology and enough about Joseph Campbell. But anyway, really interesting stuff, and I hope you guys have enjoyed uh, enjoyed talking about that a little bit tonight. Um, there was something that I wanted to bring up earlier that I didn't have. Actually, I had a chance to, obviously, but I just spaced it out. Um, if you guys uh, were following the news last week, you know that there was a, a couple of hurricanes that um, hit down in Florida, and uh, Hurricane Charlie was actually a very severe hurricane, and it kind of all of a sudden is just out of the news. Well, there has been a whole lot of uh, reporting uh, that's gone on outside of the uh, establishment media, the mainstream press, and there are a lot of people saying that that hurricane was actually much, much worse than um, most people were led to believe uh, through the, the, the typical news outlets. Um, there are reports of many people dead. Um, I've read reports of over 400, um, and I'm actually reading something um, right here that I'll, that I'll quote from you. Now, again, this is a this is a uh, um, this is not from an official source. This is, this this is from eyewitness reports, supposedly. And there's much more of this. This is just an example, um, and I wouldn't be bringing it up if I hadn't um, looked into it pretty seriously early in the day and, and looked at the extent and and tried to judge for myself myself the validity of some of these reports. But I'll read a little bit to you um, right here, and you guys make your own decision. But anyway, you might want to get on the web and um, and check this out a little bit, or if you have any friends or family in Florida, um, definitely ask them what's, what's, what's going on down there, okay? Anyway, this is uh, the rumor mill cranking stuff out, okay? A buddy of mine lives in blank Florida. He lives on the leeward side of a hill and had little more than a nice breeze when the hurricane came over. To the point, though, is that he works in video film and has a number of friends who work in news in and around Punta Gorda. Now, Punta Gorda is an area which was uh, seemed to be most hard, hard hit there, so that's what they're uh, referring to there. Um, he has viewed raw footage of the, of the destruction that blows away anything we are getting on the feeds. He reports tractor-trailer reefers full of bodies Body bags, no counts, but he is told there are hundreds. Every time a cameraman gets near the bodies, they are firmly dissuaded from shooting. Most of the stuff he is seeing is shot from a distance using a two by and a four by extender. I am working on getting him to send a broadcast quality raw tape dub. If nothing else, I will be out there in October more as I get it. One of the reasons for the hidden count might be that a large count would lessen the impact of the 2,800 lives. Uh, that, that's just speculation. I'm not even going to read any more of it. But anyway, that's just one report of many um, about uh, Charlie and um, uh, the fact that that hurricane may have actually been um, uh, may have been quite a bit worse than than, than we've been we've been told. Anyway, I'm going to keep. Uh, I'll keep looking for that sort of stuff, and I'll report on it back next week if, if there's any more to it. Um, I also wanted to say that we talked about the Tunguska uh, story last week, that in the, um, uh, in the forest there in Tunguska where that huge explosion occurred in 1907, uh, there are some Russian scientists that say that they found some extraterrestrial material, whatever that means. Um, anyway, uh, the story has developed a little bit, but nothing significant, and I'm uh, not prepared to make a decision on it. So anyway, I'm still, I'm still following it, and if anything comes of it, I'll let you guys know. But um, so far, I haven't seen anything to really make me believe uh, that that's a true story or that it's not. So we'll just uh, kind of put it on the back burner, and if something comes of it, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll definitely bring it up and let you guys know again what... Um, 
uh, what the story is with that, okay? And uh, let's see, what else? So Charlie was, uh, yeah, man, I tell you, it's just the beginning of hurricane season, and there's a whole lot, there's a whole lot more uh, activity going on out there in the, in the, uh, in the ocean. All kinds of tropical storms, and I think they're already on the letter F or or or, uh, or G. So, anyway, we'll talk again in a few minutes here. I'm going to play another piece of music that I wanted to get in. Been on my mind all day, this one here. So, anyway, enjoy it. I'll be back in just a few minutes. This is The Last Great American Whale by Lou Reed. They say he didn't have an enemy. This was the greatness to behold. He was the last surviving progeny. The last one on this side of the world. He measured a half mile from tip to tail, silver and black, with powerful fins. They say he could split a mountain in two. That's how he got the Grand Canyon. Last great American whale. Last great American whale. Last great American whale. Last great American whale. Some say they saw him at the Great Lakes. Some say they saw him off of Florida. My mother said she saw him in Chinatown. But you can't always trust your mother. Off the Carolinas, the sun shines brightly in the day. The lighthouse glows ghostly there at night. The chief of a local tribe had killed the racist mayor's son. He'd been on death row since 1958. The mayor's kid was a rowdy pig. Spit on Indians and lots worse. The old chief buried a hatchet in his head. Life compared to death for him seemed worse. The tribal brothers gathered in the lighthouse to sing. They tried to conjure up a storm or rain. The harbor parted. The great whale sprang full up. It caused a huge tidal wave. The wave crushed the jail and freed the chief. The tribe let out a roar. Whites were drowned, the browns and reds set free, but sadly one thing more. Some local yokel member of the NRA kept a bazooka in his living room. And thinking he had the chief in his sights, threw the whale's brains out with a lead harpoon. Let's great American whale. Let's great American whale. Let's great American whale. Let's great American whale. Well, Americans don't care for much of anything. Land and water the least. And animal life is low on the totem pole. With human life not worth more than infected yeast. Americans don't care too much for beauty. They'll shit in a river, dump battery acid in a stream. They'll watch dead rats wash up on the beach. Complain if they can't swim. 
They say things are done for the majority. Don't believe half of what you see, none of what you hear. It's like what my painter friend Donald said to me. Stick a fork in their ass and turn them over. They're done. Playground on Radio Orbit KOPN. This is Mike Hagen, and we got about ten minutes left here, so uh, we'll see what else we can talk about here. Um, I want to remind you guys uh, the website will be up within a week or so, certainly within two weeks. www.radioorbit.com and radioorbit.net. And that's R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T, 
only one O in the middle there. So uh, I'll have all the programs archived there in a couple weeks, and anybody who wants to uh, listen in and wasn't able to listen to the whole show, or maybe you're not up this time of night, which is pretty common, although there's quite a few people up. I know that. I've had some real um, nice emails and uh, friendly phone calls, and I appreciate it. I thank you guys for listening to the show, and I appreciate your input, and um, I'll try to... uh, make the show better too and uh, try to include your comments and talk about things that you guys are interested in talking about so if you'd like to um, give me your opinions <coughs> or if you'd like to uh, send me a, a note about a topic that you're interested in or maybe somebody that you think would be a good interview you can always send me an email and my email address is orbitradio o-r-b-i-t-r-a-d-i-o at AOL.com. So drop me a line over at orbitradio at AOL.com if you have uh, anything like that that you want to share. Or if you have any questions, and um, I talk about a lot of stuff on my show that is uh, Internet-based. A lot of um, uh, a lot of the things that we talk about uh, can be accessed over the web. So if anybody's interested in anything in particular, send me an email, tell me what it is that you heard about and that you're interested in more information, and I'll get you some um, some websites or uh, uh, whatever information that you need with regard to whatever it is that you're looking at. So anyway, I'd be glad to do that, and I encourage you guys to get in touch with me. This is an interactive show, and it's important that um, that I know what is going on out there in the community and what you guys are interested in talking about. And hopefully it'll be uh, some of the things that that I talk about, (laughs) typically. So anyway, um, the, uh, gosh, I tell you, I'm looking at the news right now, and it's just just a sad state of affairs, and really brings me back to thinking about all the stuff that Joseph Campbell was talking about, and really about, taking care of our own business and taking responsibility in our own lives. Man, I'll tell you what. Global taxation rears its ugly head. There's a nice one for you. If you're a fan of the United Nations, which I am not, I'm pretty much not a fan of any uh, established institution. I think that they... Uh, institutions in general do much greater harm than they do good. Uh, the UN certainly no different. Uh, now the UN is trying to uh, implement a global tax again. They uh, they, always, they they do this every once in a while. And of course, Kofi Annan is Kofi Annan is fully behind uh, fully behind that idea, and that'll just take billions and billions of more dollars that uh, will end up in some bureaucrat's pocket and never benefit the people or anybody else for that matter. So, anyway, um, lots of news like that. And it's just a sideshow to me anymore, to be honest. And I think... uh, I'm going to pay attention to what's going on right here in Colombia, in my own world, and uh, and do my best in that uh, in that capacity because um, 
There's just too much else going on. So, anyway, this is Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN 89.5. Carol Greenspan is next. She'll be coming in to play some music for you for Jewish Spectrum at 5 o'clock. And uh, I'll leave you with a little bit of music here in a moment. And, uh, like I said, uh, tune in next week. My, my guest will be Kent Stedman. Uh, Kent was supposed to be here tonight, um, but he had some personal issues came up, so he wasn't able to make it. But uh, he'll be on the air with us next, next week, live <coughs> from the cave in Seattle. And uh, Kent's always interesting to talk to, and he has a lot of interesting ongoing investigations that we'll be talking about. And I hope that you tune in and listen to Kent. And over the next few weeks, we have some really good guests coming up, especially on 9-11. Um, I want to remind you guys that I'm doing a special show on September 11th. Actually, September 11th is a Saturday. My show is on Sunday morning, so it's really the night of the 11th and the morning of the 12th when my show is on the air. But anyway, I'll be doing a special with uh, <clears throat> G. Edward Griffin, the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, among other incredible books uh, that is probably considered the um, uh, the about the most important expose on the Federal Reserve uh, that has ever been written and that's just my opinion but a lot of other people's opinion too so G. Edward Griffin will be with me uh, on September 11th and 12th and he'll be talking about he'll be talking about the Federal Reserve a little bit and um and then we'll be talking about how those things actually, believe it or not, are connected and how um, they've affected policy decisions in the American government um, since 9-11 with the war on Afghanistan and uh, then the current policies in Iraq and, um, and where it's going. Where, uh, or at least where Ed Griffin thinks it's going. So that'll be a great show, and I really look forward to talking to Ed Griffin on... Um, on uh, September 11th and 12th and I hope you all listening on that too so anyway Radio Orbit thanks for listening KOPN 89.5 FM Carol Greenspan is next with Jewish Spectrum I'm going to get out of here and I'll talk to you guys next week this is Big Head Todd and the Monsters with him have a great day the city is spread reach to the heavens this cloud cover breathing soft in the rain Cause I'm good looking, oh yes I have money Don't account for nothing over there Don't account for nothing Don't account for nothing over there No falls dirty, we watch our blue TV Educated Educated in monotony Rent Warning Yes, it falls from the sky The bloody tears in Live this
heart can't quite reach to the heavens Land face down in unbelief Love of money can't fill it up This empty space that keeps running me Is it true you love me? One sweet flower of ease in the bitterest hell Is your voice, is your voice to me Whisper your love, Jenna Could you really love me? Never disenchanted, disappoint me believe. I will love when, I will cry when I will work when, when and for you Oh, mm-hmm.